afternoon. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Johnny. <laughs> I have to uh, get my clock out, so... Uh, you know, we've been going through a series on the ministry of Jesus, and uh, we've been looking at all the things that Jesus said and did uh, before he made his way to Jerusalem, which will be going up to the end of chapter 9. So we're getting there. This is the end of chapter 8 that we're doing today. What's fun about this passage is this is like the quintessential Pentecostal passage that I'm pre- preaching today. Uh, when I went to Bible school. Uh, I was 18. They were doing a class on preaching. We all had to preach the middle of this passage. There was 40 students that had to preach it, and we just sat there for three hours and listened to 40 bad sermons. Uh, it was great because the you know there's a lot of great things that I get from my Pentecostal tradition. Interpreting this scripture was not one of them. Um, so we're going to be talking about faith and the authority of Jesus, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter eight. Verses 40 to 56, Luke chapter 8, verse 40 to 56. You can read along with me in your um, service sheet. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of his synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. And he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While, she, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called her saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The word of the Lord. So like I said, the topic we're going to be talking about today is faith and the authority of Jesus. And the, the first thing I want to look at is the definition of faith, how we have to understand faith in the very same way that we understand love, what faith looks like. See, faith is not passive. Faith is not some kind of esoteric manifestation mind game that you play. Uh, faith has a very real tangible thing, just like we describe love. 
A lot of times we misinterpret love and think love is this feeling, it's goosebumps, it's you know how much I want to be around you and all this other stuff. But the Bible defines love as these very tangible things that we can do with one another. Patience, kindness, long-suffering, right? Um, and so when we get to faith, it actually has a very similar way of defining it, how we define love, and the fact that faith is defined by actions in Scripture. So faith is not some kind of uh, theoretical thing that we misinterpret around Hebrews 11.1, 1, where it's, it's, this, it's, it's this mental game that we play with each other. Instead, faith constantly, when we see it in the scriptures, as defined, when we see it uh, described, we see something that has actions in it. And so faith is not passive. Faith needs to be defined. And when we look at this, passage, we see faith in action. We see a lot of ways that faith is described here. The first way that we see it is that faith is humble. In verse 41, Jairus, the household, the head of the household comes to Jesus and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and throws him at the, his, himself at, at Jesus's mercy and says, I, I need you to come to my house. My daughter is sick. Basically saying there's nowhere else I can go. And when, you know, even today, if we threw ourselves at somebody's feet, we'd probably think that was an odd thing, but we're New Yorkers, so we'd get over it pretty quickly. Uh, but back then, this, was, this is a statement he is making. He is placing himself at the mercy of Jesus and humbling himself, bowing down to say that you are Lord, you are master, you are, you are the capital T teacher. You are the one that can do this. He probably heard the stories of Jesus, ran to him and, and did this. So faith first can be described as humble. Falling at Jesus' feet. See, faith recognizes that Jesus is greater than us. That's really important to understand. That when we come to Jesus and we come to him in faith, there is a recognition there of humility in our hearts that we cannot accomplish what needs to be accomplished. That the only one that is greater, the only one that can accomplish this, it is you, Jesus. And so coming to you is, a, is an act of humility. Or humiliation is another way of saying that, to, to say that I am lowly and you are great, to say that you are the great one. I cannot accomplish this to myself. I cannot do this to myself. I don't have the power, the strength, the sustainability, whatever it is, the wisdom, the understanding. I don't have any of that. Instead, I am at your mercy. I throw myself at your feet. It is a sign of humility to say, that Jesus, you are greater. Faith is persistent. See, when the woman came to Jesus, it says that she went through a crushing crowd. Now, what was happening here, how I like to think of this is, I don't know if anybody's uh, taken one of like the number trains, the six or the four train in midtown Manhattan during rush hour. It is the worst experience you're ever going to have in your life because, uh, you know, I used to go to college in midtown, so I had two options to take the R or the six of the four train together. Every once in a while, I made the bad decision to not take the R and to take the six train. And you knew it was bad when you get to the stairs and there's a line in the stairs. Uh, and what's terrible is there's a line there because everybody is packed, a small station, it's hot, even though it's freezing outside. Everybody is waiting to get into the train, but every time the train comes, the train is already packed. And so you just hear people screaming like, coming in, coming in, and everybody like this as much as they can there's a few feet of progress and then you know all the way up the stairs everybody goes like this 
And you just do your best and you realize, I'm going to make it in about 15 trains. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to be late for class or I'm going to be late for work because this is New York City and it's a terrible experience. So the, the word here that's used to sc- describe the crowd is that same type of pressing, that crushing. Because I don't know if, you know, when you get on that train, you are closer than you've ever been with any of your family members, any of your best friends. You know, even if when you were a kid and maybe you slept in a bed with one of your friends, like you are closer than that moment. Because you are touching strangers on every side. They are rubbing against you, you know, from toe all the way to your head. You got your bag in front clutching it because someone could rob you and you'd never know what's going on. And this is what is the crowd is described around Jesus at that moment, that the crowd was crushing each other. They were crushing around Jesus. They were pressing in on him. And yet this woman was a true New Yorker. She was like, I don't care. I'm getting through. You ever been in that moment and there's this person that's really rude that's like coming through, coming, just like moving everybody around the way. Every once in a while I was scared someone was just going to fall on the tracks because they were pushing everybody out. This lady was crawling to Jesus in the press and the crush of the crowd. There were so many reasons right here why she could not get to him. There were so many reasons that were not good for her to get to him. First of all, like we said, the crowd was around her. Second of all, she was unclean. She was not supposed to be in a crowded area and touch anybody because this ailment that she had was, they call it the flow of blood here, but it was like having a perpetual period for a woman for 12 years straight. And while this was going on, Because of the clean laws in Leviticus, this meant that you were unclean, that you were not supposed to be around touching people, that you you, you you could talk to people, but there were cleanliness laws that you had to follow during this time. And so with that and the crowd, it could have been easy for her to look and be like, I guess I'm not going to make it today and just turn around and go. But no, her faith is described as her persistence to get to Jesus no matter what. See, faith recognizes that Jesus is the only hope. That I have to get to Jesus no matter what, because no, he is the only true hope that I have in this life and in this world. This, this lady, it says she spent all her resources over 12 years of her life and still found no cure. So when the, when the, the sound of Jesus came into town, she knew this is my only hope. And it didn't matter the press, the crush of the crowd. It didn't matter that she was probably putting her life in danger. It didn't matter that she was most likely going to be socially ostracized by all the people there because she broke a clear law, a a ritual religious law, that even if she was healed, that people would say, you broke this law, you made all of us unclean, and now we hate you because of that, because now all of us have to go through clean laws and rituals because of what you just did. No, she goes through all of that and is persistent to the point till she just can grab on to the hem of his garment. And then when Jesus says, who touched me, we see that fear there because the consequences of her action hit her, the trembling that she has. She realized, I am an unclean woman. I am not supposed to be touching. I'm not even supposed to be here. But yet faith recognizes that Jesus is the only hope. 
He is the only one that we can go to. He is the only one that the Bible describes. It is a hope that does not disappoint our hope in Jesus. It is not a flip of the coin hope. It is not a 50-50, a 30% chance, or I hope things go well, but we're not sure. It is a hope that has a secure future, the hope in Jesus. And so faith is persistent. Faith is also obedient. See, while Jesus was, this, this interaction happens with the woman, Jesus stops. He talks with this woman. We don't know how long this interaction goes on. But we know that he stops from where he was going and it causes a delay for him to get to the house. And during that delay, the little girl dies. And so he's having this conversation with the woman and then the teacher, uh, or sorry, one of the servants from the master's house comes in and he says, tell the teacher there's no point in coming anymore. Your daughter has died. Well, when Jesus hears this news, he instead gives a command to the mother and the father. He says, do not have fear, believe. See, the thing about faith is it recognizes that obedience is better than understanding. At that moment, it would have been very easy to been like, yeah, Jesus, I know you got like great intentions right now, but I don't want to make this suffer even longer. I don't want to prolong this. I don't want to drag this out. My daughter's dead. Thank you for trying, but being late, whatever, you know, I'm going. You messed it up. Instead, what happens is we see that the father and the mother, they take Jesus to the house. They obey the command of Jesus. Instead, of just calling it a quits. And how often does our faith call us to deeper obedience in the midst of something that doesn't make sense, where it would have been just very easy to say, forget it. I'm not doing this anymore. Time has passed. It's gone through. See, the thing about Jesus that we have to learn is that Jesus's power extends beyond human comprehension. See, how Jesus works does not always line up with human wisdom, with conventional wisdom, with street knowledge, with all the ideas and understandings and and wisdom of the world that we have accumulated over time. When Jesus is power and authority will oftentimes break with human wisdom, break with human convention in ways that we don't understand. And so to understand this, we have to understand that Jesus has his own timing. See, when when Jesus stops and He, you know, this woman gets healed and he starts to have a conversation with her. I'm sure that the father at this point is like, what's going on? Every you ever wait two seconds after the light turns green? Or is that just me? You're just like, what's this guy doing? (laughs) Yeah, I'm about to honk. Uh, This guy is probably like, Jesus, I just told you my daughter is dying. And we were making our way to the house, yet you're over here stopping 
to have a conversation with some lady, this unclean lady, what's the point? Come on, let's get a move on it. And how often in our life we ask Jesus for something, we go to Jesus for something, and we don't get that answer right away, and we're like, Jesus, you missed the boat, you're late. I don't even want your answer anymore. You keep your miracles. I wanted this last week. I told you last week that I was at the end of my rope. I told you last month that I couldn't deal with this anymore. So I don't know where you are and what you're doing, but all I know is that you're late and I've given up and I am done. And we give ourselves license to sin. We give ourselves license to walk away from faith, from obedience, from persistence, from humility of Jesus and to Jesus. And we just say, forget about it. Because Jesus' timing, and if you've been saved for more than a day, then you know this to be true, is very different than our timing. See, for us, God is either always too early or too late. But when you read the scriptures, you realize that God is always on time. His timing is perfect. It would have been very easy for that father to get extremely upset. And we probably, if he would have said, forget it, like we're done, I'm going home, none of us would have batted an eye at that. Yeah, your daughter is dead. In fact, many times in my own life, I look at Jesus and I say, God, like, I invited you into this situation a year ago. I don't know where you've been, but I decided I'm going to work it out on my own now. I'm going to do this on my own now because where are you? And oftentimes we try to fit and measure God into our human wisdom boxes and compartmentalize, well, if I were God, and, and, this, and what happens is we, we do the same sin of Adam and Eve where when the enemy comes to them, he says, you will get knowledge of good and evil. You will be like God. And what we try to do with God is we try to bring God to a peer level and, and make it seem like we have the same wisdom as him, like we have the same understanding, like we can comprehend all of his moves and all of his ideas. And when things don't align with us, God is in the wrong. But we, when, when we look at how crazy that is, we have to read the book of Job. Because when you read the book of Job, what happens with Job is Job is, is like his friend's they represent, uh, Job goes through a terrible thing in his life and he's trying to figure out what happens and his friends come and they, they start philosophizing with each other for like 40 chapters. It's very long. And they, they're asking all these questions and his friends represent the, the wisdom of the world, secular philosophy. And they're saying, Job, I think God did this because of this reason. And Job, God's not here with you because you're not righteous enough or you, did good, you didn't do good or you don't know about a sin or there's something secret that you haven't told us. You should just walk away from God. You should stop caring. You should do this. You should do that. But what I love about the end of Job is when God enters the chat. And God says something so plain to Job that every time I think of this, it, it just it reminds me of my place with understanding God. And God tells Job, were you there when I laid the foundation of the world? 
Were you there when I set the limit of the peaks of the mountains? Were you there when I told the birds how high that they can fly? Were you there when I constructed the depths of the ocean? And the answer to all of that is no, we weren't. See, God was getting something across to Job that you will not understand. Me, you will not understand how I do things. You cannot comprehend. And we lie to ourselves and we kid ourselves when we think we can comprehend. And so in, when we try to comprehend, we miss God's power. We miss his authority completely. Because we try to do these things and understand in our own wisdom and our own strength. See, not only does Jesus have his own timings, but Jesus enters into a situation that we deem too unholy for God. What is, what is crazy about what's happened here is that both, the, both women that Jesus heals were both considered unclean. The woman with the issue of blood was considered unclean, but also through the Levitical system, you are not allowed to touch a dead body because dead bodies were considered unclean. Anybody that touched a dead body would, have to, would be considered unclean for a period of time and they would have to go through all the ritual and rites to be clean again. But yet in both situations, Jesus touches them. The woman touches the hem of the garment. In that situation, he would have been made unclean. And she fears because of that. She trembles because she knows what she just did. But Jesus is not mad at her. Jesus does not condemn her. Jesus does not rebuke her. Instead, he says, your faith has made you well. Because so often in our life, we run and hide from God because we deem ourselves too unholy, too unworthy to be in the presence of the most holy and the most worthy God. But instead, just like this dead little girl, when Jesus, he grabs her by the hand and he says, child, arise. Jesus is not scared of our uncleanliness. He is not scared of our dirt. In fact, he enters into the very filthy situations of our life willingly. That's why the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not come for the righteous. It says that he came for the sinners. How often I've heard like, oh, I can never go to church because it will burn down or I get struck by lightning. Right. That. Like misses the whole point of the gospel. That you are the reason why the church exists. But the Christian version of that is condemnation in my life. Right? The unsaved know they have this idea of like God is so holy and he is, but that to the extent that somehow my corruption can corrupt the holiness of God. But we think the same thing when we condemn ourselves. That we say, man, God's fed up with me. He's done with me. That's saying that my sin was too great for the cross, that my sin somehow took God by surprise, that my uncleanliness is somehow too unclean for God, that, that we think that God is some prude, that he's so holy and so pure that just a little bit of hanging out with me is going to somehow mess up that purity and that righteousness, when the exact opposite is the true, that I am so unclean and so impure that a little bit of hanging out with God actually makes me clean. It makes me holy. It makes me righteousness. It's not my dirty cloak going over Jesus when we hang out. It's his cloak of righteousness that goes over my dirtiness and makes me whole. 
See, Jesus enters into every situation that we deem too unholy for a holy God and makes them holy. Jesus makes what is unclean clean. Jesus' authority also defies all human knowledge. Right? This lady that was sick for 12 years, it says that she went to every doctor. She spent all her money, everything that she had, and nothing could be done. Yet at just the touch of the fringe of his garment, she is healed. Let's be honest, this makes no sense. Like if, if you touch my shoe, nothing's going to happen, I'm pretty sure. Right? This defies logic. It defies logic so much that this has been, this scripture has been debated for centuries and centuries since it was written. How did the power go out? What kind of power was it? Did Jesus know beforehand? Did he know that? Like all of this stuff because it doesn't make sense. His authority and his power, sometimes we just cannot comprehend it and that is okay. We don't understand it. See, when Jesus says, don't be mad at the girl, or, or don't be mad because the girl is just sleeping. She's not dead. What does the crowd do? They laugh. They laugh at him. What do you mean she's not dead? See, the, by the time Jesus got there, it says that they were in their mourning ritual. That means it wasn't like one person knew that she was dead. Everybody that was there or had already seen the dead body, had already started mourning the dead body. Everybody knew that there was no life. There was no breath. There was no heartbeat. This wasn't a trick. Everybody knew that this girl was dead. And so when Jesus says she's sleeping, they mock him and they laugh at him. It reminds me of Sarah in the Old Testament when God, the angel of the Lord, came and said, you are going to have a baby. And she's 90 years old. And what does she do when she hears this? She laughs. Because it's ridiculous. This doesn't make sense with human knowledge except for the fact that Jesus's authority defies human knowledge. He is the only one we have learned in the last two weeks with authority over disease, death, nature, and demons. Meaning that Death does not have the final word with Jesus. Disease does not have the final word. Nature has to submit and bow to his command. He is the one that created it. And so when we think within the limitations of our authority and our power, again, we try to make God our peer. And we say, well, I can't do this. It must. God can't do this either. This doesn't make sense. I can't heal myself. I can't tell the cloud as much as I've wanted to throughout my life. Don't rain. I have a party today. Don't listen to me. But it listens to Jesus. Because his power extends beyond our comprehension. It goes beyond what we have known to be true from the moment we came from our mother's womb. His power is beyond our wisdom. And if that's true, that means that the object of our faith matters. I remember when I was young, 
This is what I was talking about with my original story. I realized that there was a, there was a way that my church talked about faith that was wrong. And I didn't put my finger on it right away, but there was an instance that happened. There was this young boy that had cancer in our church. He was five or six years old. And, you know, growing up in a Pentecostal church, what did we do? We prayed for his healing every day. The church fasted together, prayed together. We were believing God for him to be healed. The parents were fasting and praying and It was for me as a young kid, you know, time goes by a lot slower when you're younger. It felt like we were doing this for a long time and he just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually, one day he passed away, died. And it was a heartbreaking time for our church. But I remember his his mom told a story of him on his deathbed. The doctors had told him he was told the the parents that he was most likely going to die that day and she was sitting by his bedside and he was coming in and out of consciousness and one of the last times he came out of consciousness he told his mother he said mom I just saw Jesus he was showing me heaven and he was welcoming me into heaven and so he told her just don't worry it's going to be okay Continue to trust God. And after that, he died. And I remember the mom telling the story. And I thought, as a young kid, what a beautiful picture of faith. Faithfulness to God, to trust him. Even at that moment of death. And the young boy encouraged, out of the mouth of babes, encouraged his mom and his dad at that moment to have faith in God, even in this most heart-wrenching time of their life. And then I remember about a month later, we had a preacher that came and preached in our service. And it, it happened that, you know, everybody has their church seat, right? This is where they sit every week. The dad of that kid always sat next to me. And the preacher was preaching the sermon. He said, you aren't healed because you don't have enough faith. And I'll never forget, as I looked around, you know, I was just looking around as a kid. I couldn't stay still for a second, still can't. And right next to me, his dad was just weeping. And I realized in that moment there was something wrong with the sermon about faith. Because when I saw what they did and I saw what the church did and I heard what the son said, that to me was a picture of faith. And here was this preacher telling this man that his son died because he didn't have enough faith. You know, he wasn't actually saying that, but that was what it meant. And he sat there weeping and my heart broke and I didn't understand at that moment what was wrong with the theology. I just knew something was wrong. I wouldn't understand for another 10 years after that what was wrong. But the point is this. That the object of your faith shouldn't be your faith. It shouldn't be how big your faith is, how amazingly you can believe something, how much you can psych yourself up to have faith over something happening. See, in that scenario, your healing, your promise, your salvation all depend on you. 
You have put your faith in your ability to have grand faith. The problem with that is I just don't feel like having grand faith all the time. I wake up some days mad at the world. In fact, I'm not a morning person. I, make up, I wake up every day mad at the world. <laughs> some days I feel great. Some days I feel terrible. Some days I feel like I can conquer the world. Some days I wish I never got out of bed. When my faith is dependent on my ability to have grand faith, well, then my future is doomed. And that is not a hope I can rest my security in. Instead, it causes me anxiousness. It causes me to have a works-based mentality in salvation where if I try hard, I think enough, I manifest hard enough, or if I just work it up, if I pray long enough, then maybe I will have. And Jesus takes out his measuring cup and all my faith, he squeezes out and he goes up 16 ounces today. I was looking for 18. You didn't measure up. I'm not going to do that for you. Let's try again tomorrow. Do you know that the only time that Jesus gives an actual size for faith, where something that we can put a size to, a measurement to, is when he says that faith of a mustard seed will move a mountain. Now, I don't know about you. I've never seen someone move a mountain before. And that seems like a lot bigger deal than seeing someone get healed to me. So that must mean that it's a lot smaller faith needed than even a mustard seed. And a mustard seed, if you don't know, is is literally like a speck of dust. You could see it, but barely. And so the faith that Jesus calls us to, right? even when he says, you know, this person has great faith or this town has no faith, that's not a size measurement. We never know what great and small looks like. The mustard seed is the first size and the only size that we get. And to move a mountain with that type of faith seems like pretty great faith to me. And so when you wonder to yourself, do I have enough faith for whatever it is to happen, for your salvation? for your job promotion, for whatever kind of blessing that you're hoping or whatever prayer that you're hoping for, then realize that in that moment that you have put your faith in yourself. See, if something hasn't happened, a better question to ask is, is it God's time for this? Is it God's will for this? Because what that does is it takes the ownership off of yourself and it puts it on Jesus. See, the object of your faith should be Jesus, should be nothing else. The faith that of the woman and the dad brought them to Jesus and it was Jesus who did the healing and the raising, not their faith. But Jesus says your faith made you well to the woman. What does that mean? Well, you got to ask your faith in what? The object of this sentence is missing, and that's what causes all the confusion. See, faith in itself is never an object. Faith always has to place itself onto an object. 
And that object has to solely and squarely be placed on one person, and that is Jesus Christ and him alone. There is never any other object of our faith in all of Scripture. There is never any other suggestion that it could be us. In fact, all of Scripture speaks to the opposite, that we are not strong enough, we are not good enough. If salvation was left in our hands, then we get Israel. We get the massive disaster over a thousand years of failing over and over and over again. And it is only faith in another, not in ourselves, that can actually bring us salvation because even when we know Jesus, we will still sin. So it is by faith in him and him alone. It is humble, it is persistent, it is obedient faith in Jesus. And that is the only true object that we can put our faith in. And so if we read this sentence with the object placed in it properly, it would say, your faith in Jesus made you well. The power came out of Jesus, not out of her faith, not out of the parents' faith. The scripture clearly speaks that the power came out of Jesus. He says he felt the dunamis, the power, leave him. When he grabs the woman, the the girl, the 12-year-old, he commands her, get up and rise. Clearly, the power comes from him. Clearly, he is the one that deserves all the affection of our faith. He is the one that uh, is the only one that can be the object of our faith in life. So I'll finish with this. Our friends may laugh and logic may defy our obedience. But the only thing that should concern us is that our faith is placed squarely on the only one who matters. And that is Jesus. He is the only one with authority over dark spiritual forces, over nature, over disease, and even over death. My faith has no power over those things. I have no strength. I am incredibly weak against all of that. I have no authority over them. It is only Jesus who has power and authority. And it is only through him as the object of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the blessing of your son. That you. Jesus are the hope that we can put our faith in. That does not disappoint. That in you my future is secure. My heart is full of joy. And my life is content. I thank you that you walk into every unclean situation, even mine, and make it clean. That your timing is perfect and that you alone have the authority to heal my broken heart. We invite you today, Holy Spirit, to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.